Welcome to the Solo Network. My name is Moses and I serve on the Solo editorial team. Today, I have the great privilege to introduce to you uh, today's guests. First, we have doc Dr. Andrew Ong. He serves as a director of pastoral care and discipleship at Christ Church in Berkeley, California. He received his Master of Divinity at Westminster Theological Seminary and a PhD in World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, next, we have Dr. Gray Sutano. Uh, he's the Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He also received his Master of Arts in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary and his Ph.D. from the University of Edinburgh under the supervision of James Eglinton, focusing on the 19th century Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink. I hope I said all the words and names correctly. Uh, if I butcher them, please feel free to correct me because I am not a neo-Calvinist scholar on your level by any means. Now, today's uh, conversation is a follow-up to a recent interview we had with Dr. Alexander John and Pastor Tibidi Amabili on the importance of ethnic-specific ministries. And today, we want to continue that conversation with these highly respected Asian-American scholars and discuss the biblical and theological rationale for why ethnic-specific ministries are just as vital to the church as multi-ethnic churches are. Um, Andrew, I've shared with, the, uh, with you this before, but I truly believe your uh, peer-reviewed article, Neo-Calvinism and Ethnic Churches in Multi-Ethnic Contexts uh, for the Journal of Reformed Theology is the most important peer-reviewed article that's come out over the past decade on ecclesiology. It's the article that I wish I wrote, but I knew I would never get to. So for those of us who haven't read it yet, would you mind just summarizing for us, uh, for the average layperson, what your article is about in, you know, about roughly three sentences? Wow, man. Thanks. Thanks, Moses. That's pretty high praise. <laughs> I wonder how much uh, work on ecclesiology we've read. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate those kind words. Um, basically, what I was trying to do is I was trying to get into the conversation about multi-ethnic churches and ethnic churches since... Multi-ethnic is so hot right now. Um, and uh, what I wanted to do was, you know, coming from the ethnic church and having such a high view of what the ethnic church has offered to people like myself, ask the question, like, should multi-ethnic churches um, be so uh, advocated for that we no longer have room for the ethnic church? Is there really no place for the ethnic church in multi-ethnic contexts? And I wanted to uh, address that from my theological perspective, which is this neo-Calvinist perspective, which some would argue uh, has a racist history. So I wanted to just engage with that question. Yeah, that's fascinating because um, like you said, so many people, uh, missiologists and most academics were advocating for multi-ethnic churches. And as you are studying this, I'm sure you notice that there's even sociological data showing maybe that's not the only way or the best way for churches to move forward. So what made you so interested in studying the theological basis for ethnic specific churches? Yeah, you know, uh, when I was at Westminster in our gospel communication class and we got to uh, write sermons and um, the text that, that my group chose was the Tower of Babel. And I was, um, you know, just going through the commentaries, reading the Tower of Babel and um, the Alan Ross commentary on Genesis kind of picks up on this theme that God's intention was actually diversity. 
And, and what Babel was, was um, a uniformity against God's uh, cultural mandate, his, his desire for pluriformity um, in the world. And I thought that was fascinating and super affirming. And I thought that that really um, could nuance the discussion of multi-ethnic versus ethnic churches, kind of blew the gates open for me. Wow. Okay. Hopefully we can get that resource out out there for people to see. Um, Thanks. That's really helpful. Gray, uh, in light of what Andrew has shared and maybe even the core theological foundation for his article, you know, what exactly is neo-Calvinism and how is it distinct from Calvinism? That's a massive question, Moses. And that's a really, really good question. And it definitely has a lot to do with what Andrew is saying there. Basically, neo-Calvinism was a 19th century, 20th century, early 20th century theological movement coming out of Holland, Netherlands, specifically the theology of Abraham Kuyper and also of Hermann Bavinck. So basically, neo-Calvinism refers to their attempt to rehabilitate Calvinism, Reformed theology, Orthodox confessional Reformed theology for modern uh, Dutch culture. And so what they were trying to say is that confessional reform theology is not going to be a hindrance for the flourishing of what they saw around them, right? Which was pluralization, which was the uh, coming of the, the, the age of knowledge and science, and also the coming of the recognition that the world is a much bigger place than the, what they, they had considered. So they actually argued, hey, Calvinism is not going to be a hindrance to that. Calvinism would be helpful for that. So uh, that's why it's, it's, there's the neo and neo-Calvinisms, right? It was a reassertion of Reformed theology for the modern world. And what was really interesting from their own perspective, and this is maybe what's most relevant for, for what Andrew just said just now, is that they actually argued very, very strongly against a kind of uh, church state model that said that there should be a theocracy today, but rather we should actually see uh, culture as shaped by Christian principles. And what that means is that in the era of God's common grace, God is patient with the differing worldviews that are present here today, the differing cultures and ethnicities and races that are here today. And God desires uh, for the Christian gospel to be persuasive to this context of plurality, right? So that's the broader common grace basis for plurality. And so uh, what Kuiper actually argued as a statesman was that the state doesn't have a responsibility to enforce a single worldview. That would be a uniformity principle. But rather the state's responsibility is that all the peoples in that particular nation will be able to freely pursue their own visions of the good. There would be, in Kuiper's vision, you know, Islamic schools next to Catholic schools next to Christian schools. There would be uh, secular schools and modernist schools as well. And so people take Kuiper's famous quote out of context, you know, every square inch belongs to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they think that to mean that Kuiper was a kind of theocrat and he wants to make Holland into, you know, a completely theocratic Christian nation. What Kuiper meant by that was very different from that. Kuiper actually meant that to say that, you know, Christ is Lord over everything, but it doesn't mean that Christians are Lord over everything. And so he actually made space for the freedom of conscience, made space for pluralism to really flourish Uh, even though he argued that this was a a Christian principle. Christian principles meant that there should be a plurality of worldviews in the public sphere, even though he didn't endorse every single worldview. So if that's in the public sphere, uh, 
Kuyper and Bavinck also argued that the church, interestingly enough, had a plurality to it, right? The church's plurality is going to be witnessed to by the fact that the church will have its own distinct character in every culture, time, and space. And we shouldn't therefore look to the past as if there's a kind of golden age for the present. And we shouldn't therefore look to the past and say the church has to look like one particular culture, even if it's Geneva, even though they loved what Calvin had done with Geneva, even if it's, you know, uh, a, a particular time and space and, and maybe a historic Israel, whatever it might be, they, they argued against that and said that the church should have its own distinct character in every age and every time. This really comes really clearly when, when Bavink, for example, came to America and he argued that America didn't have a rosy future for Calvinism. America was way too capitalistic, too strong-willed, too um, uh, uh, pragmatic for them to embrace the predestinarian vision of Calvinism. And yet, he said, that's okay. We shouldn't expect American Christianity to look like Dutch Reformed Christianity. And he even said Calvinism isn't the only truth, which is a very potent, controversial statement there. And that's really consistent even before, to his views before he came to America. In 18, I think, 94, he wrote an article called The Future of Calvinism. And he argued there that if you really believed in the freedom of the churches, then, you know, we see this, this a diversity of confessions, right? The Dutch Reform had their own confessions. The Westminster Standards had their own confessions. And so we should expect each particular nation, culture to produce a confession of their own. Though He's not going to say that we should have contradictory confessions, but there's a certain character to it. And, and that therefore each church and each church's culture could and should look quite different from one another. And we shouldn't impose one culture to another culture. You know, he makes a very strong distinction, therefore, between the gospel and the culture. So that's that's a rough outline of the pluriformity of the churches. And and Andrew made mention of the uniformity of the churches. That's what I think uh, uh, we, we sometimes think of. You know, we just see a bunch of people coming together and we're all uniformly the same. But, but Boving had a unity and diversity model where different ethnicities, different cultures are in one same church but they're all reflecting God in diversity of ways. And that's really important to keep in mind. Wow. That's awesome. And so maybe uh, if you can um, help me um, help us understand this. So maybe what Bavink is trying to say is that, you know, when we're all in heaven, uh, we're not only be speaking English, right? Like that's not the ideal goal or, nor is it something that we should be striving for today. It's like the perfect, if they're, you know, as you strive to be a sanctified church, um, it seems like what you're saying is that neo-Calvinism advocates for like a, a variety of cultural expressions and they're all good. They all can be good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we take the Tower of Babel narrative as both a blessing and a curse, wasn't it? I mean, God uh, uh, punished them by dispersing them and, and giving them multiple languages. But at the same time, it's a blessing because now uh, the people are forced to follow what God had commanded them for them initially, right? To, to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And I think uh, uh, what Bavink would argue is that naturally, if people were just diversifying all over the globe, then of course there will be different dialects, different languages start to come out. And here's where, you know, I've been studying Islam to teach the Islamic course in, in, in Washington, DC. Here's where Christianity really differs from Islam, where in Islam, the Arabic language is really kind of almost like a divine language where God had chosen this particular language to communicate his revelation. For Christianity, you know, 
it's always been a, a project of ours to translate the Bible to different languages. The Bible itself has a diversity of languages and a diversity of, of cultures represented therein, uh, Hebrew, Greek, Roman, and, and so on. And so there's, there's lots of ways in which the Bible should be communicated to all these different cultures. And, and so the gospel transcends the cultures and transforms the cultures. Wow, that's really, that's really good. Thank you. Um, I guess following up to that and maybe tying it to like historical application, um, Andrew, uh, I know neo-Calvinists have a little bit of a icky part in their history. And so like, um, how is our desire to affirm ethnic specific ministries different from apartheid in South Africa, where Calvinists in that country push, you know, where push for this uh, policy of segregation? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And it's a very important question because we don't want to uh, repeat history's mistakes. Uh, for those who are, who are not aware of, you know, the apartheid in South Africa, the, the enforced segregation of, you know, the African air culture and, and the black community in South Africa, um, it has actually very deep theological roots. And um, a lot of people point to this, this, Abraham Kuyper, neo-Calvinist tradition to say that is the reason why there, there was such a segregation and there was so much racism in South Africa. And um, I talk about that in my paper, you know, th there is something to that, but I, I would say that um, a reform theology practiced in the best way and in the most holistic, um, consistent way um, is very much against apartheid. Sure. Um, we want to say, as Grace mentioned, Calvinism does affirm that God intended for a multiplicity of ethnic cultures to, to flourish and they should um, grow and they should be, um, you know, it's, it's good for a Chinese person to understand his Chinese-ness. It's good for, you know, uh, a Nigerian to understand their Nigerian and, and that's the beauty of what God preserved at the Tower of Babel, even as he judged the people there. Um, but that um, valuing of someone's Nigerianness, someone's Kenyanness, someone's Koreanness, um, it's not automatically, it doesn't need to automatically lend itself to racism and segregation. And um, I think the difference between apartheid in South Africa and what, what I would want to advocate as just the affirmation of ethnic churches is that, first of all, when you affirm ethnic churches, you are not uh, necessarily um, excluding multi-ethnic churches. I believe that even as I believe ethnic churches are good and that God uh, blesses them and they're legitimate churches, I also, you know, I serve in a multi-ethnic church myself, you know, and I'm, I'm happy about that. And I think the multi-ethnic church has its place as well in the kingdom of God in multi-ethnic contexts versus apartheid where they said, no, nope, just segregation. This is, this is the only way. And, and the difference there is, and I think Gray used this word, there's freedom. <laughs> there's freedom of conscience, you know, and freedom of worship. And, and there's a, a voluntary aspect to, yeah, do I want to be a part of the ethnic church or do I want to be a part of a multi-ethnic church. In apartheid, there is no choice. There is no, um, yeah, freedom to do so. So I think that's a huge, a huge, huge difference. Yeah. 
maybe and on top of that, maybe in the apartheid experience, there was also the uh, element of power and like social power, political power distribution, and how maybe how unevenly that was, um, I guess, incorporated into South African society. So segregation then, as a result, maybe was more our apartheid was more oppressive towards non-whites, and is and that could be a danger too, right? Yeah, I definitely think that's that's a huge. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, that's a huge other example that we need to mention. I mean, when we talk about the legit legitimacy of ethnic churches in the United States, we're not talking about the legitimacy of you know Anglo <laughs> churches in America. We're we're talking about is it okay for a black church to be a black church? Is it okay for the African Methodist Episcopal Church to exist? You know, um, is it okay for Boston Chinese Evangelical Church to exist? versus in um, South Africa, where you have this dominant white powerful group um, saying, no, you, you have to have your black church and we have to have our white church and there can be no intermingling. We have to be segregated. Yeah, you're right. The power dynamics are super important there. Got it. That's th Thank you for clarifying that. And so then going back to what you're talking about earlier, it sounds like uh, what neo-Calvinism is teaching here isn't so much one is better than the other, like ethic specific or multi-ethic isn't better than the other. They're actually two sides of the same coin in terms of how the church can ex be expressed on earth. Is that how I'm, am I understanding you correctly on that? Yeah, I, I would say that just goes with the, um, the pluriformity of the church and the Catholicity of the church. There are many different ways to do church and many different expressions of the church and no single local church is the the very perfect expression of what the church is uh, in god's eyes yeah awesome well um well great could you define for us maybe uh, what the doctrine of the pluriformity of the church actually is in the context of herman bobbing's theology yeah, it's something that I already just mentioned just now. Uh, he would actually argue that the pluriformity of the church is a distinctly reformed Catholic position, right? So again, I would point readers to the, the Future of Calvinism article uh, where he really teased this out. He argues there that specifically that if you're a reformed Catholic, you know, you're distinguishing yourself from a Roman Catholic, right? And he argues that Roman Catholicism is a contradiction in terms. Why? Because Catholicity says that the church is universal, that the church could be all over the world, the church could be expressive of different cultures and ethnicities and so on, and, and even different shades of the confession, right, of the confession of theological confession that you're, you're adhering to. But if you're a Roman Catholic, you're actually saying that the Catholic church is going to be manifested in just particularly one uh, 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 church nation principle, namely in Rome, and also in, in a single line of the papacy, right? And he actually argues that's a contradiction in terms. So if you're a reformed Catholic, uh, immediately what you see in the reformational movement is that every single country that adopted the reform principles took on their own character, right? So he says that, again, the Dutch Reformation looked very different than the Scottish Reformation and the British, I mean, the, 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 the English Reformation, right? And also, that's also very different from what you get in Germany, and what you get in Switzerland and so on. So uh, the, reform, the, the reformational principle, in other words, not only permitted, but also encouraged this diversification. And you see that, especially in the different confessions that were written at the time, not only the Westminster standards, but three forms of unity, 
the, the, the Genevan standards and so on. These are all different shades of the truth for their particular nations and peoples. And so he argues that when the reformational period came out, Christianity came to its own. Why? Because it's no longer now limited to one particular expression, namely the Roman expression. And now the whole world can take a hold of this leavening power of the gospel. And each culture could therefore take it into a different direction, even though they're all, all going to be united by the Lordship of Jesus and also of the Bible, right? And so this, I think, reminds me of what Tim Keller says in one particular uh, place. He argues that when therefore you're, you're evangelizing to someone of a different ethnicity, you're not therefore calling them to be Americans first or Dutch or Indonesian, right? But rather you're actually calling them to be Christians first, which means that if you are an African uh, uh, and, and you are an African polytheist, you're not being called to become an American first and foremost, but rather you're going to be called to be an African Christian. And then if you're an Indonesian, you're not going to be colonialized into following Dutch culture as if Dutch culture is more advanced than Indonesian culture, which is the mistake of, you know, uh, the colonial uh, 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 desire of the Netherlands in the 19th, 20th century. And Bobbing was very critical of that. He actually argues that, you know, uh, the Indonesians should actually follow their own culture and their own version of Christianity. So we should not become Dutchmen, but rather Indonesian Christians. And Johan Bobbing's nephew uh, also had strong thoughts about that. So that's incredibly important and, and, and allows us to really be critical about how we think about communicating the gospel to different ethnicities and distinguishing our own cultural preferences, perhaps, to what the gospel essentially really is. Wow, that's profound. I kind of wish that, I mean, so like, like, what happened in that conversation? Like, why was not, why was that not translated to the American context? I mean, that's a conversation in itself and an episode in itself, I'm sure, but that's fascinating. I wish that more churches had embraced this, more cultural, um, more different cultures of the church had embraced this. That's incredibly encouraging. Uh, for both of our guests and for both of you guys, um, just tying it back to scripture a little bit, what are some misconceptions of Revelation chapter seven and how advocates for multi-ethnic ministries, um, you know, understand that. And then how do neo-Calvinists understand it differently? Yeah, I can, I can take a shot at that. I think when people think of revelation seven, it's this eschatological vision of, of the end of time. And they think, okay, well, if that's the ideal, if that's where we're going to end up, um, why doesn't my church look like that? And um, I just think that's it's very simplistic. And I think it's well-intentioned, right? A desire to um, follow the trajectory of, of scripture, this biblical theology of the people of God and, and this, this beautiful vision that's this place before us in Revelation 7. Um, but I also think it too highly estimates our local church, you know? And, and I think, and, and I think there's a lot of just because of, you know, American, maybe Baptistic or Congregationalist kind of understanding of the church, um, just a, a lack of understanding of the connectionalism of the church and what it means that uh, the church is, is Catholic. Um, so th I think that's one important part of the answer to this question. Yeah. So maybe that. Uh, is maybe is it what you're trying to say is that um, 
we can't look at the individual congregation to be reflective of Revelation chapter seven, but like it should be like the body of Christ and all of the churches across the world that reflects Revelation chapter seven. And so yeah. it might mean that some churches might be ethnic specific, but others might be multi-ethnic and they're both okay. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so I, and I think, sorry to chime in really quickly. I think Andrew, you made a really good point there. I think that um, emphasizing the Catholicity of the church is so crucial and important here because just because your local church doesn't look like Revelation chapter seven, it doesn't follow that the whole church doesn't look like Revelation chapter seven. I think we can actually say that the church, because it exists globally, already looks a little bit like Revelation chapter seven, not perfectly, but already anticipates it. So I think there is a kind of narcissism there too, where like, oh, my church doesn't look like Revelation seven. So therefore the church isn't like Revelation chapter seven. Well, zoom out a little bit. And look at Christianity all over the world. It's, it's representing so many different nations and cultures. Wow, that's good. And maybe even Revelation chapter seven, where it talks about the, the nations and, and, the, and the tribes and people speaking all languages, worshiping Christ. It doesn't also tell us how they're arranged, right? It doesn't tell us whether they're all congregated together speaking in one language. It actually says they're speaking different languages, but it doesn't tell us if they're like, how does John know uh, that they're, different tribes and, and, and peoples, unless maybe they're even congregated together in heaven and that, and that he sees the separation of cultures, right? And we don't know ultimately. And so maybe it's a bit presumptuous to assume that like it's Revelation chapter seven is this multi-ethnic picture of what the church ought to be. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, exactly. I like to use the analogy. It's imperfect, but I like to use the analogy of like, take a bowl of Skittles um is is revelation 7 a, a mixed bowl of skittles or is it a bowl of skittles that's arranged with all the you know reds and the greens and the oranges you know together um in the, in one sense we don't know what that picture is of revelation 7 but we know that they're all there right that's good yeah and clearly he wasn't colorblind either right i mean he could see that there are different like ethnic groups right. and races over there yeah, that's good. All right. Well, um, just taking a, a little bit more practical and as you guys minister and, and shepherd and raise up um, pastors in the seminary context and the local church context, um, what would you say to an Asian American pastor who is leading a church that's predominantly Asian American? Like, would you encourage him or her to continue to um, target or, 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 or um, intentionally become more multi-ethnic? Um, like, or should they continue to stay and serving in their Asian American context? Uh, is there a right or wrong answer then? And how can they know? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think a variety of Asian American pastors who are pastoring Asian American churches will have different callings. And, um, and I think their contexts will, will be a big part of their callings, you know? And I think there, there are multiple levels to this question, because I think there's a level of discipleship and who are my people now and how do I best disciple them? Like if, if my church is filled with Chinese people, I want to disciple Chinese American Christians, you know, um, at the same time, there's also the outreach, the outward facing element about like, who are we trying to reach? Who's not here. Right. And so there's the question of, should we just reach those who are of our own kind um, or should we reach outwards? And I think, I think like that is a question for 
um, elders and pastors to, to really wrestle with and to um, seek the Lord about because uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think there is a one size fits all answer for every single church or even for a, one church in different seasons of its church, you know, like um, it was good that some of these immigrant churches focused on ministering to, you know, their, their people in their own language. But now some of them have English ministries now. And what is that? It's an opportunity, right? Um, so I, I think, yeah, there's no one size fits all, but there are tons of dynamics to consider. Yeah, I, I think another um, thing that comes to my mind is that your church should at least reflect um, the particular city that you're in or the particular town that you're in. So I do think that if the town is a predominantly, let's say, Chinese uh, 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 town, then I don't think you should feel guilt at all that you're not in a multi-ethnic church. I think you're ministering to that people. I also think, therefore, that the church should really reflect the the, the city that they're in, right? That that if if the city is a really diverse city and your church is only catering to one particular uh, race or ethnicity, I do think there should be some hard questions there to ask. I think this is a particular issue when it comes to, let's say, an immigrant-based church. Uh, back in college, I actually went to an Indonesian-speaking church with an English ministry. And, you know, the, the, the pastor was a first-generation Indonesian immigrant there. And a lot of the first attendees and, and members were, were Indonesian, uh, first-generation Indonesian immigrants there as well. And what began to happen is that as they had children, right, and they were going to the English ministries, those children grew up, they couldn't identify with the main Indonesian ministry. And as those first generation folks grew older, you know, they, they found that their, their church simply couldn't grow, right? Because they were dependent upon more Indonesian immigrants coming through. And when there weren't any Indonesian immigrants that were coming through, their church simply just stayed the same. It's the same people and it didn't grow. And I think that, you know, they were in a particular town that was mainly Hispanic. So a question that I would have in mind is how do you reach out to these people who are Hispanic, who are in this town, so that we're not completely dependent upon who happens to come here for school, who happens to come here to, who got a job in the United States, right? And actually reflect that particular town that we're in. And so I, I think there's a place for churches who are, you know, for that immigrant community, but at the same time for the longevity of the church and for the mission of the church, it should also seek to minister to those in that particular town that they happen to be in locally. Yeah. And I would qualify what Gray just said, though, with, again, the, the Catholicity of the church. So I, I also think there's, there's a sense in which we are wanting to be contextual and realistic with our gifts and our strengths. So I, I don't think that it's impossible that a Latino person might walk into that Indonesian church that Gray was a part of. But I do think that... Um, that there, there are ways that the Indonesian church could serve the Latino um, uh, churches or that the Indonesian church could serve mission towards uh, the Latino population in, in ways that aren't just simply, hey, let's be a, let's start a, you know, a Spanish speaking ministry. Let's, you know, just throw all our um, eggs in this basket of, of reaching this Latino community, I think there are creative ways to be about that. And I, and I think that, again, speaks to the connectionalism that's important. Like we need to be partnering with other churches in our area. I mean, yeah, sure. You might have a metropolitan area that is super diverse, 
does every single church need to have the same ratio of demographics in each church? No, but if there is a heavy population of a Latino people, I, I would hope that there is uh, a place for them, even if it's not in a multi-ethnic church. And I would hope that the Chinese church in that area supports the Latino church there, you know, that is reaching out to this population, even if the Chinese church is not perhaps well-equipped to, to reach out to them, you know? So I think there are creative ways to do that. And again, I think it speaks to the Catholicity of the church. Yeah, I agree. So in other words, Andrew, you're saying that we should all be Presbyterians to do this. <laughs> Connectionalism is, is quite important. Uh, I, I'm, I'm okay with uh, parachurch connectionalism. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't know. I think I'm okay with it. <laughs> but, you know, the kinds of, I, I love the city to city model, you know, where you got Baptists and Presbyterians and egalitarians and complementarians, you know, like, getting together and wanting to reach their cities. That's fair, that's fair. My Presbyterian spirit still says we should just be Presbyterians. Oh man, thank you guys. Uh, just one final question then, uh, you know, when we, you know, we oftentimes talk to like church planners or pastors and they talk about wanting to reach a, a specific ethnic group, right? And so it's related to um, just what Gray just shared and how can we help them to discern the heart motives when it comes to like, are they being motivated by good theology or are they just being purely pragmatic or, or are they even kind of being patronizing in terms of like, Oh, like we have the money, we have the resources, let us go help those poor people that happen to be all like a, a certain race or ethnic group. Like how can we help them to discern that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good pastoral question. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer, but um, a part, a part of me wonders you know, and I think this, this, I, I, I think good church planters, when they're going into areas that they're not a part of, they get to know the churches that have already been established in the area that they're seeking to uh, minister to. You know, I, I think that church planters should, should do that instead of saying, hey, you know, there are a ton of Asian folk in this area and we're just going to go get them, <laughs> you know? Um, I think that's super, like Gray used the term earlier, narcissistic. And like, we can finally do the work that, that's that been missing <laughs> while completely neglecting the fact that there are people already on the ground having been doing the work, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you see this all the time. Some kind of flagship mega church sends a uh, highly... Um, highly resourced core team into a city to, to do something. And, and meanwhile, you have these ethnic churches or these, yeah, churches that have been there for forever, faithfully ministering with, with much less resources, just kind of saying, hey, perhaps we could have done better with those resources than, than you guys. Um, you see that all the time. And I think we need to be more careful about that. Um, but yeah, I, I think conversation, just conversation with other faithful Christians to help listen to the spirit and discern, yeah, is this kind of a, a narcissistic way of going about ministry or is this truly of God? And should we be pursuing this? Um, yeah, doing it in community. 
Well, thank you guys for your time. Um, this is incredibly helpful. And I hope that our listeners were also blessed by this. Uh, it was great seeing just how your theological training has also uh, shaped the way uh, practically and how the church can look like, what the church can look like and how pastors and church players can even, um, how they can even frame their way of uh, targeting people and, you know, reaching their communities. So thank you guys again so much for your time and your wisdom. Um, uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Glad to be here.